Well, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 14, if you've got your Bibles with you. Uh, I wonder if, you, if it ever crosses your mind whether evangelism, getting people to trust Jesus, ought to really just be a case of education. After all, the way you see Jesus, he is so generous, he is so loving, the gift he has given you is so great that if other people really knew what was being offered to them, how could they ever reject this great offer of the gospel? And perhaps you think, if only I could get people to see who Jesus is, they would accept him. If only I could get them to see the the wonder of the gospel, perhaps they would turn to Jesus. Well, even if we attempted to think like that, sometimes I'm sure experience has shown us that it's not the case. You can't just teach people into the kingdom. And one of the frustrations is that often we will, you will meet people who've got the clearest idea of what the Bible is about, who Jesus is, what he came to do, what it meant that he died on the cross and rose again three days later. And knowing all that Jesus is and, it, and, and all that he has done, they will continue to reject him. Why is that? Why would they continue to reject Jesus, even knowing the fullness of what he is able to offer? That's partly the the issue that I want to consider this evening. We're going to look at Mark chapter 14, those verses we read, and we're going to see that Jesus was rejected precisely because of who he was, precisely because he was the Messiah. He was not rejected based on a misunderstanding. And actually, Jesus made sure that he he was rejected on those grounds if he was going to be rejected. I want to remind you that Jesus is still rejected in much the same way today. I want to think about how even for believers, we're often tempted to reject him in a similar manner, though not quite in in such a severe way. And I want to remind us of the importance of making a right response to Jesus, especially if we've seen who Jesus really is. Now, in the passage, it's sort of split into two sections. Uh, Not um, in terms of number of verses or whatever, but in the way way it's written, it seems to be split into two sections. The first half of the passage, uh, you've got Jesus, Jesus remains silent. And then the narrative switches where Jesus eventually gives this very bold and clear answer to one of the questions. And it's those two halves of the account that I'm going to focus on this evening. So first, I'm going to think about the the, the false accusations that are made against Jesus and how Jesus remains silent. Uh, Just a little bit of context of what's going on. Uh, Jesus is, um, he's had the Last Supper uh, with his disciples. He's gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's prayed uh, for strength from God. And then the, uh, the crowd have come to arrest him. And they've arrested Jesus and they've taken him to the house of the high priest, uh, verse 53. And then the chief priests and the elders have all all been got up out of their beds. It's the middle of the night, uh, the night before one of the most important religious festivals in the Jewish calendar. Imagine uh, getting knocked uh, awake by a servant on your door at 3 a.m. on uh, Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. And you're invited to come to this trial. Come on, we've we've got to go and assess this man. Is your head ready for that sort of impartial reasoning that a fair trial deserves? I'm sure mine wouldn't be if I was awakened at 3am on Christmas morning. Actually, you don't have to guess what state the mind of these leaders was in. Uh, It tells you exactly what they were intending to do with this trial, and it wasn't to give an impartial, fair, reasoned assessment of Jesus. 
um, verse 53. The chief priests and the whole San, uh, verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus, so they could put him to death. They're not here to assess him. They're not here to weigh the evidence. They've already made their decision. And they're here to look for evidence that will give them the ability to put him to death. They're looking for evidence against him. It is just about the most partial, biased, unfair trial you could possibly think of. And so to that end, they wheel out many witnesses, it says. Verse 56. Many witnesses are brought out to testify falsely. But the laugh is, and I think really Mark is mocking them in this way, the laugh is that even these false witnesses can't be made to agree. All they've got to do is invent two lies that match, and that's it. Jesus will be gone. But such is the innocence of Jesus that even a false charge will not stick to him. Even a false charge can't be invented against him. And then, interestingly, uh, we're told, verse 56, many testify falsely against him. And then verse 57, we get an example of a specific testimony that comes against him. The specific testimony is given in verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another, not made by man. It's had me thinking, why would Mark write about the many false testimonies that come, and then also give example of this one specific one? Here's two reasons why he might have done that. One, I think, is to put Jesus in line with some of the other prophets of old. Jeremiah once prophesied that God would bring destruction on the temple of God. And the Jews of the time thought, to speak against the temple of God, because the temple is the dwelling place of God, to speak against the temple is blasphemy itself. And even though Jeremiah was speaking the words that God had given him, not speaking his own attack against the temple, but saying God is going to make this attack, Jeremiah was sentenced to death. Jeremiah wasn't actually put to death in that moment, but he was sentenced to death because of his prophecy against the temple. And so, uh, including that here, aligns Jesus with many of the other prophets of old, and it gives us uh, reason for understanding why the high priest would eventually call it a blasphemy, Jesus' words. But then also, I think the reason is, Mark knows that his readers are reading with hindsight. We're not following the story as it happens. We're reading many years after the event. And in this verse, if you approach it with a little bit of hindsight, you can see what's really going on. Mark doesn't give the commentary that links to this verse. But interestingly, in John's Gospel, there's a very similar verse. And in John's Gospel, John says, look, quite clearly, when Jesus said words like this, he wasn't talking about breaking down the the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his own body that would be rebuilt. And so what Mark's doing is saying, look, even these false charges that are brought against Jesus, even if they might have had an element of truth in them, it's not a false, it's not a charge against Jesus. Actually, it's a prophecy about what would eventually be shown to be true. This is no evidence against him. This is evidence in his favour. This is the best that they can muster. Now, frustratingly, against all these false accusations and empty charges, Jesus does not answer. He does not answer. You get that twice. Uh, Verse 60, the high priest stood up before them. Are you not going to answer, Jesus? And then verse 61, Jesus remained silent. He gave no answer. 
Why would Jesus not answer when the charges against him were either uh, emptily false or actually charges that were in the end in his favour? Why would he not answer? Why would he not speak up? Here's three reasons that I think. One is to fulfil the prophecy about who Jesus was. You were hearing this morning from Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah, in chapter 53, writes of the Messiah that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jesus knows what the prophets have spoken about him. Jesus is still totally in control of this situation. And he keeps his mouth quiet so that he remains aligned to all that the prophets have said uh, he would be about. That's one reason, to, to align himself with the prophets. Another reason is because Jesus is totally committed to the task that is set before him. He's totally committed to the path of suffering that he's already begun to walk and has already begun to play itself out. Back in verse 36, Jesus has prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. He's praying, Father, if there's any way that I need not go through with this death on the cross, with this rejection, with the humiliation, with the shame that is about to fall on me, if there is any way, Father, take this from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. I'm willing to go through with it. The temptation of Jesus did not stop in the garden. Here he is, in the courtroom. These empty false charges are brought against him. All he has to do is raise his voice and say it's false. Here's what I really meant. Here's what the scriptures say about me. Here's why, it's, here's why that's a lie. It would be so easy for him to just raise his voice and say, no, these are not true. And he would be free from all that was about to happen to him. Yet, not what I will, but what you will, Father. That's the second reason he was committed to the task that God had given him. And thirdly, because Jesus was not willing to submit to a false view of himself. He didn't want to be accepted or rejected based on a false understanding of him. Here's what I mean. If somebody brings a charge against him, Jesus broke the law in this way... If Jesus responds, then the only outcome is that either he's accepted, oh, actually, that's a lie, he's now a law keeper. Or he's rejected, I'd know, he's a law breaker. He's accepted as rejected as a, as a law breaker or a law keeper. If somebody brings a charge against him of teaching falsely, Jesus could either, if he responds, he will either be rejected as a true teacher and a prophet, or, or he'd be rejected as a heretic. If Jesus engages with the charges that are brought against him, he submits himself to their assessment of him. But Jesus doesn't want to submit to a false assessment of himself. And we'll come to this when we, when we look at how Jesus does answer. Jesus only wants to be accepted or rejected on the basis of him being the Messiah. I am the Messiah, he will say. Are you going to accept me as the Messiah or will you reject me? Now, the overall effect of this trial and Jesus' silence, the, the overall picture that Mark paints for us is one of, well, mocking foolishness. But what, what is the purpose? What are they achieving? 
And I think in presenting the ridiculousness of this situation to the reader, Mark is challenging us. And he's saying, how is it that you approach Jesus? How would you put him on trial? The Jewish leaders have come not weighing the evidence. They've come looking for evidence to put him to death. Many do the same today. They make a pretense of offering a fair trial. They ask what sound like sincere questions. If God is all good, why is there so much suffering in the world? If my lifestyle is a sin, why have I been created with these desires? Why should I bother with following Jesus and becoming a Christian if his church is so full of hypocrites? Now, I'm not saying that these questions can never come from a place of sincerity. I'm not saying that they can never be asked with integrity. But so often what you find is that these questions are a shield. A mock mock way of saying, look, actually, I'm not interested in this Jesus Christ. I don't want to know him. And here's a question that I know I'm not going to listen to the answer to because surely the answer is going to be long-winded. I won't listen. They are veiled excuses from those who claim to be asking sincere questions. And Mark's account is a challenge to people who ask in that way. Not in a direct way. Interestingly, if you are in that position of asking questions to create a shield so that you need not accept Jesus really, then it can be hard to accept the rebuttal that I'm bringing to you. But Mark does it in a much more clever way and actually in a much more helpful way. Because what Mark's doing is he's not pointing the finger at you, he's pointing the finger at them. Look at what they are doing. Look at what the Jewish leaders did to Jesus. Can't you see the foolishness of it? Can't you see the arrogance of it? And if you can, now then, can't you also see the foolishness and arrogance in your own position? Who, in the end, treat Jesus in just the same way. Mark is challenging his readers. And you know, as I've been meditating on this passage this week, I've been challenged about my own response too as a believer, as one who loves Jesus, who wants to accept him, not reject him. I think there are times when, just like the Jews were doing in this situation, we can tend to look for evidence to put Jesus to death. Not in, not in such a dramatic and final way, not in an outright rejection, rejection of Jesus, of course. But it's all too easy to look for evidence which silences Jesus, pushes him out, removes his claim on our life. Here are a few examples I've been considering. One is in the example of generosity. What does Jesus ask us to do with our money, with our time, with our resources? He calls us to be sacrificial. He calls us to be generous towards others. He tells us that it is more blessed for us to give than it is to receive. And he promises us that as we give and share with others, God will richly supply all our needs. We know what he demands. And yet, what do we do in return? It's easy, often, to make excuses. There is a certain standard of living that I ought to be able to live up to. Because that's what my neighbours are living up to. And even there are many others within the church who live up to that same standard. We might make excuses uh, regards prudence or the way we spend money, stewardship of what we own. And we use these excuses to silence the claims of Jesus on our life. I've already given enough. 
I won't go any further. And sometimes what that can result in is, yes, we're happy to share with others, but we're not really giving to others. We're happy to share out of what we have left over, our surplus, but we're never willing to make a a sacrificial gift in the way that Jesus calls us to sacrifice. We make excuses, we look for evidence to put Jesus' claims on our life to death. Another might be our love for the world. We know that Jesus calls us to be distinct. He calls us to be separate from the world. He calls us not to feed our minds with the unholy things that come from society. And yet we look for evidence to put that claim to death. Ah, it's impractical to, to live like that. It's impractical not to have those things. It's, it's not realistic for me to actually uh, cut off that member which causes me so much sin. Wouldn't my witness for Christ be hindered if people thought I was an oddball? I want to hold on to being loved by the world. I need some self-esteem from somewhere. And so I will continue to love the world and seek validation from the world alongside my seeking validation from Christ. We look for evidence to put to death Jesus' claim on our lives. Think about our interactions within the church. We know that we are called to be one man, united together. Loving, caring for one another, united across cultures, united across language barriers, united across uh, ethnicity and uh, social status. We know that we're called to forgive one another and bear with one another in the church. But it's so easy to make excuses, to look for evidence to put Jesus to death. Look, if I followed all that Jesus is asking me to do there, just think how ridiculous a situation I'd be put into. I'd have to make the first move in reconciling with this person. I'd have to admit that I'm wrong. I'd have to engage so much emotional and mental effort just to engage with that person because they they think so differently from me. Their family is structured so differently from me. They use their money so differently. I'm not sure it's worth the effort for me to really be truly united to that other person. We look for evidence to put Jesus' claim to death. Do you see the parallel that I'm trying to draw here? It's not that as believers we are making a full-blown rejection of Christ. But the same, the remnant of the same sin is still present even in our hearts. The Jewish leaders approach Jesus with a foregone conclusion. This is what we want and we're going to look for evidence until we get it. And sometimes there's a remnant of that sin even present in the hearts of believers. A sobering thought to think about is that Jesus makes no defence against those types of false accusations. He remains silent. The person who has made Jesus a product of their own ideas and designs will quickly find that they're not listening to Jesus at all, but they're just listening to their own imaginations. We need to be careful that we let the life and the word of Jesus speak for itself Because when we accuse him falsely in order to silence him, we may quickly find that he has turned silent altogether. But there is a question that Jesus does respond to, and I want to turn to the second part of the passage now. Jesus now reveals himself to be the Christ. The turning point in the passage is verse 61. The high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? What is the high priest asking? Who is this Christ? That he mentions. 
Uh, I'm sure many of you have got a, a, a bit of an understanding of who this Christ is. Uh, the word means anointed one. The Jewish scriptures are full of uh, promises, especially in the prophets, of God sending a deliverer. Uh, he's going to send uh, one who is in the line of that great King David. And he is going to restore peace and unity to the people of Israel. He's going to bring them glory and all the world will see this glory. And what the Jews had done is they'd taken these promises from Scripture, huge chunks of Scripture, and they'd pushed them through the sieve of their own, the needs of their own culture. Because at that time they were, they were living under the, the grip and the control of the Roman Empire. And they pushed them through that sieve and they mould then a Messiah of their own making. A Messiah who's going to rescue them specifically from the Romans. A Messiah who's going to focus on, on all the triumph and the victory that they can pluck from the Scriptures. It's interesting that still many today do the same. They're happy to talk of the need of a Saviour. They're happy to, to instruct people to seek out the Messiah. But the Messiah that they're modelling, the Messiah that they're offering, is based almost entirely upon the needs of their own moment. They're not taking Scripture and, and seeing what the Messiah is promised to be. They're taking their own needs and deciding what they want the Messiah to be like. Look, it's not that Jesus has nothing to say about racism or about mental health or about the family or about our well-being or about um, satisfaction in life or women's rights or any of these other things. It's not that Jesus is silent on those matters. But if our portrayal of the Saviour centres and focuses on these things which are not central to Scripture's message and Scripture's uh, depiction of the Messiah, then we know that actually we're not presenting Jesus at all. We're just presenting a new version of, of our own Messiah that we've dreamt up for ourselves. We're in the same position as the Jews in this passage. And if we were ever confronted with the one who really is the Messiah, what would we do but reject him? He doesn't fit our agenda. He doesn't answer the questions that we want to be answered. And so we push him away. We look for evidence to kill him. Well, it's this question that Jesus does respond to. I am the Christ, he says. I am. Jesus is that Messiah, that Christ. But in, in the completeness of the picture. Jesus knows that when the prophets were speaking about uh, peace, it wasn't just political peace. It was peace with God. Jesus knew that the problem really was not that Israel had been taken over by stronger nations. The problem was their sin, which led to that taking over as a judgment. That's the issue that Jesus has come to deal with. Jesus knows that the glory that is promised is not the earthly glory of wealth and power and status. The glory that is promised is the eternal glory of God. And so Jesus says, yes, I am actually the Messiah, but I'm the Messiah that Scripture speaks of. And in fact, this is the first time in the whole of Mark's Gospel that Jesus affirms himself as the Messiah. Back in chapter 8, he got close to it when he asked his disciples. And Peter says, you're the Christ. And at that moment, Jesus responds and says, you need to know who this Christ is going to be. He's not going to be the one you expect. The Son of Man is going to have to suffer. He's going to have to be rejected. And Peter hated that answer. No, 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 he said. Yeah, that, that can't be right. Never. But it was. The prophets have said that this Messiah would suffer. Well, now is the moment of that Messiah's suffering. 
The Jews write him off because here he is arrested. How could he possibly be the Messiah? But Jesus says, if you look again at the scriptures, you will know that I am he. I am the Messiah. What a claim to make. Jesus, how are you going to prove yourself as this Messiah? Jesus proves himself in, in two ways. One is, one is he leans back on the scriptures. Uh, the rest of his answer, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. That is a reference to Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus leans back on scripture and says, look again at what they've said. I am the one fulfilling it. Uh, again, the one coming on the clouds of heaven is a reference to uh, probably Daniel 7 and the prophecies of the Son of Man. But then more obviously in his answer, what he's doing is he's, he's leaning forwards. He's warning them about the future. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And if you know those references from Daniel, you will know that what that means is when he's coming, he's coming as judge. The whole of the world is going to bow the knee before him in worship and recognition. That's who I am says Jesus. Yes, the glory and the triumph and the victory that you've designed into your idea of the Messiah is present in me, but in a far greater way than you've ever imagined. I'm not just going to sit on the the throne in Jerusalem. I'm going to sit on the throne of heaven. And I will not just judge between uh, the brothers and sisters in the family of Abraham. I will judge the whole earth. I am the one with glory and power. And and Jesus is quite clearly challenging the high priest in his response. He's saying, here's the truth. This is who I am. I'm the Messiah. Now what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this truth? And I think what Mark is doing in the way he recounts uh, this trial is he's placing that same question onto you. What are you going to do with Jesus? Mark hasn't written this just purely for the sake of recounting some history. This isn't a lesson in how to be brave when you're accused falsely. This is the gospel message. And Mark wants you to respond rightly to Jesus Christ. He's asking, where would you be in this courtroom? Would you be on the side of the Jewish leaders? Would you be one of those who come to Jesus with their own foregone conclusions about who Jesus ought to be? And when he doesn't fit those ideas, you hate him immediately. And you make a pretense of assessing him, but only for the sake of cutting him down and silencing and pushing him away. Mark shows these people are laughably incompetent. It shows us that, as we've already seen, by their inability to get two witnesses to agree. He shows us especially that they're foolish. Because in the end, they make themselves the arch enemies of the one who will judge the whole earth. Isn't that what they've done? Jesus has said, I am the Son of Man, I will come on the clouds of heaven to judge. And what do they do to him? Verse 65, they begin to spit on him. They blindfold him, strike him with their fists and say, prophesy. And the guards take him and beat him. When that judge comes on that day of judgment and vindication, what will he do to those people who treated him in this way? What will he do to them? Will they not be the first in the queue for his vengeance? For his justice? They've made themselves arch enemies of the judge of the whole earth. I hope you can see how Mark is describing the foolishness of the situation of these people. Foolishness because of the willful blindness 
that they need in order to sustain that position, but foolishness because of the eternal implications that it has for them. Are you aligned with the Jews? Or are you submitting to Jesus Christ? With the evidence that Mark's Gospel has provided for you, in your hands, having read of his uh, miraculous power, his ability to heal, his ability to raise from the dead, his power over the forces of evil, having heard the wisdom of his teaching, having seen that he's been accepted by the God of heaven, both at his baptism and at his transfiguration, having heard of his promise to give his life as a ransom for his own people, and sitting in the position of hindsight, being able to see the evidence of the empty tomb, and having heard the witness of not only the first apostles who saw him alive, but also many millions of Christians throughout the millennia who have testified to the work of Jesus in their lives, that have changed them, that, that have powerfully worked in their lives for good. With all this evidence at your fingertips, will you continue to remain stubbornly blind to who Jesus really is? Or will you submit to him? And will you worship him as the Messiah? Won't you stand with Jesus, even in this courtroom, even if that means you stand next to him as he faces the abuse of the world? Be ready to face the utter hatred, the rejection, and perhaps even the physical persecution that the world can throw at Christ. It may seem at this moment like a position of shame to be in, a position of weakness but it will be shown one day to be the position of wisdom. The position that was on the right side. The side of triumph, the side of victory, the side of the Messiah. Will you continue rejecting Christ, even if you know who he is, or will you submit to him as your Lord and Saviour? I'll leave that question with you this evening. We're going to have another hymn now to help us think about what it means to submit to Jesus as our Lord in Christ. We're going to, uh, we've got at the cross, uh, at the cross. Again, we'll stand for this hymn. Thanks. Oh,
Pray to close this first part of our service. Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for what your word teaches us. Thank you for the challenge it so regularly brings to us to think again about how we approach Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray, especially those of us who are believers, perhaps who've recognised in ourselves this tendency to, to look for evidence to silence the claims of Jesus in our lives, to put him to death, as it were, by pushing him out, Father, forgive us and help us to have a heart that is not moulding a Messiah of our own making, but is willing to submit to Jesus as he reveals himself to us in his word. Help us to approach him with humility rather than the arrogance and the foolishness that is epitomised in the Jewish leaders that we've read about this evening. We pray... In Jesus' name, Amen.